What are the big foreign policy challenges facing the United States today? And what principles ought to guide American foreign policy in the years and decades to come? Emma Ashford and John Glazer of the Cato Institute will detail what they see as the threats and opportunities on the horizon, and they'll take your questions next. Hello and welcome to this sponsor briefing. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the director of multimedia here at the Cato Institute. and I'm pleased to welcome you to our live exclusive discussions between Cato scholars and Cato sponsors. For the rest of 2017, we'll be featuring discussions like this. Uh, the next one will be September 14th, featuring Ian Vasquez and Marion Tupi discussing global liberty and prosperity. I'd also like to invite you to visit the Cato Institute's 40th anniversary website detailing uh, some of the challenges and uh, victories the Cato Institute has had over, over the long timeline of 40 years of the Cato Institute and some testimonials from policymakers, journalists, and leaders of the liberty movement. Today we're talking with Emma Ashford, a research fellow in the Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and uh, John Glazer, Director of Foreign Policy Studies at Cato. We've linked to their bios here that we won't uh, detail, but it's safe to say that they are two of Cato's young and talented scholars here that we're uh, happy to feature today. So to the both of you, welcome. So we've structured this discussion around the challenges and opportunities that face the United States uh, over the next few decades. So there's no shortage of topics to, to cover, and I want to get to uh, as many Cato sponsor questions as we possibly can. But we'll uh, begin with this, and we'll start with you, uh, Emma. What do you view as some of the biggest foreign policy challenges and opportunities uh, facing the United States? Well, let me start by saying thank you to all our sponsors, because without you guys, uh, it wouldn't be possible for John and I to do what we do and try to move U.S. foreign policy in a more sensible and hopeful direction. So thank you for all of your support. Um, in terms of the challenges and opportunities facing U.S. foreign policy, I think it's a very interesting time for policymakers. Um, and the issue that I think should be top of the agenda for policymakers to discuss is the level of U.S. commitments to the Middle East. Um, and some of you have probably heard me say this before many times, but the U.S. is extremely overcommitted to the U.S. Uh, the statistic that I, I like to tell our interns when I talk to them is that the U.S. has actually bombed Iraq during each year of the last 25 years. And if that doesn't exemplify the US military commitment to the Middle East, I don't know what does. We've fought at least five wars, numerous smaller engagements. Um, we've invested thousands and thousands of US lives. We've invested $3.4 trillion. And it's not at all clear that we've actually been able to steer the Middle East in a better, more stable direction. We certainly haven't steered it towards greater democracy. And so the question I think U.S. policymakers should be asking themselves as they think about the medium to long-term future of U.S. foreign policy is how can we meet our relatively narrow security interests in the Middle East without the massive level of commitment that we have made over the last few decades? All right, to you, John. Yeah, so as you indicated in the introduction, this the prompt for this briefing is to kind of look uh, broadly, not just in the near-term immediate policy and politics um, kind of considerations, but 10, 20, 30, 50 years out. Um, and when I think about that kind of timeline, I think about a changing distribution of power in the international system where the United States will no, no longer have the position of kind of unrivaled primacy 
the kind of unipolar moment that it saw uh, in the aftermath of the Cold War. And resulting from that, I think, is going to be a gradual shift in the understanding of what America's role in the world should be. And so, you know, the major arena, I think, is not going to come from small bands of uh, non-state actors in the Middle East waging, you know, um, asymmetric warfare. It's, I don't even think it's going to be Russia and Europe and that kind of dynamic. It's really going to come in Asia. Um, China is, is rising, as we all know. And as China rises, the role of the United States, I think, is going to uh, have to change because of the declining relative power of the United States. So, you know, we have to make a strategic decision about whether or not we want to continue to be the, the dominant military power in the region, um, whether we want to try to manage a complicated and Byzantine um, set of territorial and maritime disputes in the South China Sea, um, whether we want to continue to try to manage local disputes, um, even on seemingly bigger problems like uh, North Korea, um, you know, is it the case that we want to continue to guarantee indefinitely the um, uh, security of South Korea, uh, continue to base almost 30,000 U.S. troops there, um, continue to be the lead in, in terms of trying to manage the the problem that North Korea poses with regard to its nuclear weapons program and so on. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to make a strategic choice here. And one of the arguments against kind of revising America's role in that region is that we don't want to cede power to China. You know, we don't want to give them a leadership role. But, um, you know, I, I would suggest we challenge the notion that we need to maintain this status as the indispensable nation and maintain sort of uh, responsibility for all these extracurricular activities that are kind of remote to our core national interests. So when I think about many decades ahead, I think that's going to be the, the narrative that takes place, and we'll have to see how the United States actually um, chooses. All right. Thank you, John and uh, Emma. This conversation will be driven mostly by your questions, so please enter them into the chat box to the right of the video. We'll get to them, as many of them as we can, over the course of the next half hour or so. And thank you especially to those who submitted questions uh, ahead of time. Uh, feel free to send questions to Harrison Moore, Cato's Director of Development, uh, and any questions ahead of any briefings that we, we have coming up. His email address is hmore at cato.org. So let's get to a few uh, sponsor questions uh, to begin here. Uh, Francis Johnson asks about the topic of applying economic sanctions to North Korea. How can the United States persuade China to vigorously apply economic sanctions to North Korea? Well, that's a really important question, Francis. Thank you for it. You know, um, China's mainly reluctant to really um, sort of uh, cramp down on on uh, North, North Korea's uh, economic prospects and really in involve itself constructively with uh, economic sanctions because it fears uh, the implications of a collapsed North Korean regime. Uh, and moreover, on a longer-term strategic problem, it fears a unified Korean peninsula under the American security umbrella with uh, U.S. troops uh, stationed there. It, it values North Korea as a strategic asset as a sort of buffer state. And so one of the things I think, as I kind of mentioned, the changing American role in, in East Asia is we could probably leverage our alliance with S South Korea and our presence on the peninsula 
um, as a kind of bargaining chip uh, to incentivize China to get involved in a more constructive way with Pyongyang. Um, and so, you know, that could involve sanctions, it could involve uh, making certain concessions in terms of um, North Korea's security concerns, because really its development of nuclear weapons and uh, missile development is born out of its own sense of insecurities and um, a recognition that uh, the sort of military superpower that is the United States um, is, uh, is obviously a threat to their very weak state comparatively. Um, and so once we realize that North Korea's nuclear ambitions are born out of this kind of insecurity, uh, we can more sort of aptly and deftly um, construct some kind of diplomatic engagement with China involved. Um, and so, you know, the prospects for that are okay so long as we're willing to um, make certain concessions and sort of revise our, our role on, on the peninsula. A related comment uh, from Francis Johnson is, is this idea that enforcing international sanctions requires patience, diplomacy, coherence, and strength. And I would uh, put to you, is given the political constraints that exist in the United States, how likely is it that we can honestly adhere to what you might believe to be a really good policy? With regard to sanctions? Yes. So my only sort of uh, emphasis on the sanctions question is that they need to be tied to some kind of broader strategic goal. Sometimes when uh, Congress and Washington in general faces a, a tough geopolitical question that you know, doesn't present really good military options, uh, nobody wants to really um, engage diplomatically, uh, they sort of default to sanctions as a kind of here's what we're doing and we're doing it but it's sort of unconnected to any kind of strategic goal. What you want is to try to pressure North Korea uh, in order that they can make certain concessions uh, and uh, get a, a diplomatic deal in the end. And if you can't do that, then sanctions are just a kind of uh, tool that uh, doesn't have any end goal connected to it. All right, uh, another question from a sponsor. Why does our foreign policy seem dominated by buying relationships uh, rather than by diplomacy to solidify common interests. So I, I'm. That's a really interesting question, and I'm not entirely sure how to address it. Um, you know, I think there are a couple of ways in which um, our economic policies and our foreign policy intersect, um, and one of them is this question of foreign or military aid. We do spend um, quite a lot of money. Uh, working with other states to build up their own defenses. Um, oftentimes there's domestic benefit to that too. Some states, particularly in the Gulf, spend a lot of money on American weapons in, in order to defend themselves. Um, and the argument that I would make is that we perhaps need to think more about how we can help other states to defend themselves without necessarily relying on the US um, and what they might be able to do to more effectively defend themselves um, in reality. So buying the weapons that are appropriate for specific defense situations rather than focusing on, say, high prestige F-35 style weapons programs. Um, but in general, the US alliance system is very heavily tied in to our web of defense procurement commitments um, and to our promises to defend these other states. And I think that's a question that policymakers are going to have to really think about as we move forward in the long term and become somewhat more budget constrained. 
All right. Uh, another question uh, from R.J. Manning. Thank you, R.J. Is NATO an example of an international organization that has outlived its mission but continues to exist simply to serve bureaucratic interests? Uh, what do you recommend in regards to revising uh, America's alliances in order to address current and political threats? Thank you for that question. I particularly appreciate it because I recently wrote a paper on this issue, so you set me up really nicely to talk about that paper. Um, NATO is uh, an organization that no longer fulfills the function for which it was intended. And if you look at the way that NATO developed after the Cold War. So during the Cold War, NATO actually did a pretty good job of helping the US to push back the Soviet Union. There were certainly problems, but it had a clear function. It had a clear threat it was facing. After the Cold War, what we actually see is um, the US in particular, helped by a variety of bureaucratic interests in Brussels and elsewhere, reshaped NATO into a tool that was less about defending against some big external threat and more about um, sending NATO troops on out-of-area missions, so peacekeeping in the Balkans, peacekeeping in the Middle East. Um, and particularly, NATO kind of became focused on a mission that was effectively perpetuating itself. So NATO expansion actually became a core reason for NATO. And I would argue that that has itself reduced the alliance's ability to provide for the common defense, which was its initial function. And so while I don't think NATO is going away anytime soon, I think it is an organization that no longer has a clear function and which is no longer as unequivocally beneficial for the U.S. as it used to be many years ago. Okay, so related to uh, the questions about NATO, one of the criticisms that Donald Trump, among others, has have leveled against NATO is that there are a lot of countries in NATO that aren't pulling their weight. We have some uh, spending data here uh, in terms of countries that are above the line, so to speak, in terms of spending. We have the United States far and away the biggest uh, contributor to NATO, uh, Greece, Poland, Estonia, and the United Kingdom and other, other countries are effectively below the line or, or, or near that line. What does it mean that that, should that be the dominant criticism or should we be, be saying, look, if, if NATO didn't exist, perhaps you'd be for, far more interested in spending on your own defense? NATO provides a great excuse for European countries, particularly large European countries, often very rich European countries, to not spend substantial amounts on their own defense. Um, and that 2% metric that Trump talked about in the campaign is not always the best way to actually understand how countries commit to NATO. Um, so you mentioned Greece, for example, as one of those countries that actually meets the 2% spending threshold. It does that partly because it feels very threatened by Turkey, which is also a NATO member, and partly because it spends so much of its money on military pensions because its economy is so bad. So these statistics can be a little misleading, and it's perhaps better to talk about capability so, in this so, context. So Greece is spending, we should understand, maybe it's not all into the uh, tooth uh, part of the spending, but more of the tail, that is to say supporting the the people who've already served and things like that? Yeah, in a lot of cases. Um, and so what we see um, in NATO member states' defense budgets is a lot of spending on things like pensions for military retirees and not so much focus on actual capabilities that would help them to be ready if there was a conflict. Um, and really the only way to address that shortfall in the long run is for the U.S. to stop providing 
that capability for them. So the U.S. doesn't have to necessarily withdraw from NATO tomorrow to do this, but the U.S. could dial down the presence of American forces in Europe, the amount of capabilities that we provide to European allies, and all of that would encourage European states to actually start spending more on their defense and spending it on the right things. All right, a question here from uh, sponsor Richard Howard. Thank you, Richard. What are the prospects for normalizing relations with Cuba? There was it seemed seemed to be a dramatic turnaround from the Obama administration to the Trump administration regarding Cuba, but it's not clear that that has had any practical effect. Yeah, I think the Obama administration tried to get the ball rolling on a diplomatic opening to Cuba. And um, I th it's pretty clear that the Trump administration's posture is to roll it back. Uh, and I think that's unfortunate. I mean, the uh, embargo on Cuba is just uh, very outdated. Doesn't It's not connected to any kind of strategic goal that we want. Um, it doesn't do anything to change or alter the nature of the regime in terms of democratizing Cuba and this, this kind of thing. So it's not clear what kind of service uh, it, it provides beyond um, helping the bottom lines of certain politicians who are particularly interested in maintaining this embargo. So Marco Rubio, uh, senator from Florida, is, of course, uh, very, very um, um, insistent on, on keeping the embargo, on continuing to isolate Cuba. Um, I think that there are good reasons to lift the embargo and uh, reestablish uh, more regular ties with Cuba that go beyond the fact that the, the embargo doesn't actually do much. Um, better relations with our neighbors in this hemisphere, um, perhaps opening up you know, mutually beneficial trade with, with Cuba. Um, I think that this is more likely to have a positive outcome on um, ordinary Cubans' lives, the nature of the regime, and so forth, rather than isolation. So it's, I think it's really unfortunate that Trump is sort of changing gears here. All right. Uh, uh, just a reminder here, if you have a question for Emma Ashford and John Glazer, please uh, enter it into the chat box and we'll try to get to them over the next uh, 15 minutes or so. Uh, Robert Ayers has a question. After we pummeled Serbia in 1999, some commenters remarked, uh, alas, the lesson to be learned is that if you are the ruler of a small country and want the U.S. to leave you alone, you need WMD. And after we agreed with Libya's Gaddafi, uh, that he would end his WD program in exchange for being allowed to rule in peace. Uh, regime change came to him anyway. Uh, many more commentators noted the same thing, hence North Korea. Uh, I would add Iran. Uh, is there any way to put the genie back in the bottle? You know, I think, Robert, that's a really interesting question. It's actually one I've been thinking about a lot myself lately as we look at not just the North Korea crisis, um, but with the steps that the Trump administration seems to be taking on Iran. If you go back and you actually look at the history of North Korean non-proliferation attempts, you'll see that the Clinton administration actually set up uh, an agreement known as the Agreed Framework with North Korea that was an attempt to prevent them getting a nuclear weapon. That all broke down under the Bush administration, the North Koreans advanced towards a weapon um, and now believe that that will make them secure from U.S. regime change efforts. Um, if the U.S. were to do something similar in the case of Iran and go ahead, break away from the, the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear deal, that would send even more of a signal to countries around the world that the U.S. really can't be trusted when it makes non-proliferation agreements and that the only defense against U.S. regime change is actually 
potentially possessing a nuclear weapon. And that is not something that is good for anyone. It's certainly not something that's good for US foreign policy. Um, and I think it was the Nobel laureate Tom Schelling pointed out, if you look at US nonproliferation efforts over the last 20 years, whether it's in Iraq, whether it's in Libya, elsewhere, what you actually see is that US actions are the main driver of proliferation of WMD elsewhere as people seek to avoid US invasions. All right, a question from John. How should we think about the South China Sea? You touched on this just a little bit, but uh, broaden that if you would. Sure. So the problem in the South China Sea is one of um, various overlapping claims to uh, maritime and territorial areas, mostly uninhabited rocks and reefs and islands and so forth throughout this, uh, this, this region. China claims a particularly and uniquely large chunk of that uh, area. And uh, this over this conflicts with other people's, you know, sort of uh, other countries' um, definitions of, of their uh, claims to territory and maritime claims in, in the area. Um, part of the problem that I see strategically is not just that the conflict itself and these various disputes don't add up all that much to, to a significant uh, impact on U.S. security interests. Um, but even more so, uh, we potentially are getting into a problem in which we there's a moral hazard problem going on. So Philippines is is very very weak compared to China, obviously, uh, but they're a security patron of ours. We guarantee their security. Uh, we have some military assets there, um, and if they get into a dispute over some uninhabited rocks in the South China Sea with China, that could obligate us to get into a kind of clash with China, and that would obviously end. Uh, really badly. Uh, these similar things go on with China and the uh, sort of uh, Japan and the East uh, China Sea too. Uh, so a lot of these allies that we have in the region have competing claims, and if we insist on sort of uh, playing global policemen in this region, uh, we could really get ourselves into a lot of trouble. Uh, if we recognize instead that China's a growing power, it's going to start making certain demands about its own backyard, the same way the United States did when it rose to prominence in, the, in our own hemisphere. Um, and then coupled with that, recognizing that it's not all that important for American safety, American security, um, I think we should take a, a, a step back uh, and allow the disputants to uh, uh, figure out on their own what kind of settlement that they want. And hopefully that's, that's how it goes. You know, there's the temperature on the South China Sea issue kind of ebbs and flows. Sometimes it gets really hot and sometimes it kind of cools off. And that's the point I think we're at right now because there's just sort of bigger problems in the region. All right. I want to talk about uh, U.S. defense spending uh, briefly. We have uh, some details here on uh, comparative U.S. defense spending. The U.S., spends $829 billion roughly on defense spending. Uh, NATO without the U.S., $242 billion. China, $147 billion, uh, and, and on down the line. What does it mean that the United States is far and away the, the biggest spender when it comes to defense? I know Chris Preble has detailed this uh, a great deal in a lot of his writings, but just give us a broad overview of, of what Obviously, that gives us certain opportunities, but it has to give us some risks as well. So 
my takeaway from these statistics is that the U.S. debates that we have over defense spending, you know, that the military has been gutted, that the defense budget is in decline, um, are using talking points that are really fundamentally misleading. The argument about defense spending shouldn't be about whether the military needs 3% more this year or 5% more this year. It should be about what our goals are, what our interests are, and how we more effectively spend the money that we have in order to actually achieve those goals. So when we talk about defense spending, there are many, many ways in which it could be improved. Um, and I'll give you a, a very silly example, but just last week, the Government Accountability Office released a report on military bans. And it turns out that even under sequestration, even under the budget cuts that there have been in the last few years, the US military has not downsized the number of military bans that it has and currently has 130 military bans on staff. So there are plenty of places, some of them, like that example, are a little silly. Others, like procurement problems, like the F-35 program, which is massively over budget, are more serious. And across these areas, we can do far more to reduce the military budget while also making the military effective. If I can pick up on that really quickly, you know, it's a signal of the perversity of how we actually pay for our military that, you know, decorated top generals, sort of top brass of our military, go in front of Congress and testify uh, with some frequency and they tell them, you know, we don't need this weapon system. It's really expensive and we could more easily and better use the money elsewhere. And Congress, who typically, you know, uh, approaches top military ge generals with some deference, instead they say, no, too bad. Right? And the reason is because the development of a lot of these weapon systems are important to employment in their districts or the, the, uh, the, the defense corporation has, has manufacturing assets in their, in their districts. Um, and so the kind of setup that we have in this country of sort of increasing military budgets uh, separate from what the military itself says we need uh, I think is a real problem, and it should should sort of encourage us to uh, look at what Congress does with military spending with some scrutiny. Uh, if you have a question for Emma Ashford and John Glazer, please enter it into the chat box. We'll try to get to it in the next uh, 10 minutes or so. Um, related to that, you know, Ben Friedman here at the Cato Institute has basically said we ought to be letting these branches of the military eat each other's lunch when it comes to uh, spending priorities, but instead it seems that we have this sort of gentleman's agreement about the relative funding levels for the different branches of the military. What do you think? Would that, would something like that, a more competitive process within the Pentagon, would that actually improve things or might that make things worse? I think a more competitive process would un undoubtedly improve budgetary issues, but I think that there are also other low-hanging fruit that we could consider. And one that the Foreign Policy Department, and particularly Cato's Vice President for Foreign Policy, Chris Preble, has been really active in promoting is the creation of a new round of BRAC, the Base Reallocation and Closure 
uh, commission. The idea being that the military has many bases existing around the country that they don't really need anymore, that they don't particularly want anymore. And in a lot of cases, the, the DOD has actually come to Congress and said, please close some of these bases so we can effectively reallocate our resources. And so um, in recent months, Chris has actually been spearheading a bipartisan group of experts from across the think tank community to lobby Congress, write a letter to Congress in which they advocate for this base reallocation. And I think that's the kind of low-hanging fruit on the defense budget that is achievable even in this political climate. Uh, the uh, chart that we're uh, throwing up right there in Europe, we the United States has lots of bases as well. Uh, is that as politically sensitive as closing bases in the United States? Uh, so I just wrote a, a study uh, on overseas bases for, for the Cato Institute. And, you know, the, it's really hard to measure precisely how much these cost, but we have a massive overseas military presence, and it's permanently stationed most of the time. You know, we have concentrated uh, numbers of bases and troops in Europe, in the Middle East, and Asia. And I really kind of, in the report, I, I question the strategic utility of these bases. But in terms of uh, budgetary stuff, uh, estimates range from 60 to $120 billion per year just to maintain these, these bases abroad. Um, and, you know, we could easily reduce them and not lose any contingency access. We could easily reduce the number of bases that we have and not sacrifice uh, strategic abilities or getting, getting to places really quickly if we need to um, militarily intervene and so forth. So that's another area that, just like BRAC in the domestic sense, we need to kind of uh, think about uh, the value of the bases that we have and uh, the costs that they, that they impose on us. And so uh, that's certainly another area that we could possibly cut. Uh, if you have questions for uh, John Glazer and Emma Ashford, please, please ask them in the chat box and we'll try to get to them. Uh, Brian asks, how will public opinion trends concerning foreign policy likely shape the focus of activity by politicians and the Pentagon? You mentioned generals going to Congress and saying, we don't need this, uh, we don't need that. We'd like to have the uh, ability to reallocate our resources. But uh, how does public opinion trend with potential changes in the military? So I think one of the more interesting things about this uh, election season, this presidential campaign, which was unusual in a variety of ways, um, but one of the more interesting things was that we had a candidate who openly said that he disagreed with some parts of the foreign policy consensus. And this is an opinion that is increasingly popular with the American people, particularly young people, millennials, under the age of 40, 35 or so. Um, many of whom believe that the U.S. should maintain a strong defense, but shouldn't necessarily be involved in fighting every brush war around the world. Um, now, so far in this administration, those statements haven't actually translated into an improved policy. But I think that this is something we will see come up again and again in future campaigns. Candidates will find it increasingly hard to make the case for a, an expansive, aggressive US foreign policy that effectively tries to solve every global problem when the American public isn't in favor of it. All right. Uh, question from Lee. Does the world need a superpower? If not the U.S., then who? If there were a vacuum, would it always be filled by someone? I'm reminded of Team America, World Police. 
Uh, thank you for the question. You know, it's a it's a tough um, question to answer because you know there's a lot of theory involved in uh, whether the world ought to be unipolar or bipolar or multipolar, which is the most sort of uh, stable uh, arrangement for world power. Um, I think what we ought to do is think more about what is the purpose of American foreign policy. You know, the the founding generation talked a lot about building up defenses so that the political life and the experiment in constitutional republicanism, republicanism here at home can survive, free from molestation abroad, free, free from invasion or attack. And if we think about U.S. foreign policy in that way, as opposed to being a superpower with all of these added responsibilities in all these distant regions, I think that uh, that's certainly more in line with with sort of the Cato vision of uh, libertarianism at home and uh, sort of free markets, peace, limited government, this kind of thing. It's more conducive to a limited government vision. This this idea that your military ought to defend your territory and your people and uh, not get involved in all kinds of elective conflicts abroad, which tends to happen if you have outsized power and outsized influence. That said, we should maintain a healthy um, uh, space between, you know, uh, our, com our geopolitical competitors and the money that they spend on defense and the money that we spend on defense. I think that's, that's good to have a powerful military because it deters a lot. But we also are extremely safe just by virtue of our geography. We have vast oceans to our east and west, which serve as a defensive barrier to most kinds of conventional threats. We have weak and pliant neighbors to our north and south. We have a nuclear deterrent, which you know deters any uh, country from attacking our soil. Um, and the world in general over the past 70 plus years has been getting more and more peaceful with rates of interstate conflict going down. Um, the, the world is peaceful for a lot of reasons other than American primacy, American military predominance. And we can explore those and I think kind of balance against them and um, we sh it should help inform our foreign policy actually. We have a question from uh, Fred Young. Hi, Fred. Uh, please speculate on the implications for U.S. foreign policy at the time when the country can no longer sell its bonds due to fiscal insolvency resulting from unsustainably increasing federal debt. Hey, Fred. Thank you for the question. Um, so I think this comes back to some of those issues that we talked about a little earlier with defense spending. Um, you know, if you look at the U.S. budget um, and you look at where all this money is being spent, it goes on basically two things, entitlements and defense spending. And in the current political climate and the political climate that's existed for several decades now, defense spending has been largely inviolable. Um, we hear a lot of talk about sequestration, about substantial defense cuts in the last four or five years. In reality, if you actually look at the numbers, those cuts have been a tiny part of the overall defense budget. And there are many, many places in which we could improve even just our understanding of where the money that we spend on our defense actually goes. And so for me, the question is not so much whether our spending will continue to pose a problem in the future, I think we probably can sustain defense spending into the future if we really want to. It's a question of how we allocate scarce resources. And I think, as, as John has made the case quite effectively here today, um, it's not clear that we need to be spending that much money 
be in every country around the world solving all of these problems um, just to meet our own defense, we can probably do that in a smaller, less expensive way. Yeah, so my guess is that Fred is a, is a history buff because if you look at history, empires of old really had to retrench and pull back from their global responsibilities and presence because of the fiscal constraints that they ended up feeling at home. And that tends to happen when you kind of overspend on defense and domestic liabilities kind of build up. But as Emma indicated, you know, Troublingly enough, one of the main problems with our foreign policy is not that it's unsustainable fiscally, but rather that it's really sustainable. And therefore, policymakers don't feel the crunch that the fiscal constraints might impose. And instead, it allows us to do all kinds of um, uh, not so good things, like uh, getting into wars that we don't need to fight and, and you know, imposing on ourselves extra costs uh, and, and sort of... Um, creating problems, strategic problems in various regions. So, you know, although I'm concerned about the incredible rising debt problem that America has, uh, probably the worst problem is that we are really rich and can sustain a bad and expansive foreign policy for at least the foreseeable future. All right. That's all the hot time we have for this time. Thank you to John and Emma for joining us, and thanks to our production crew for making this happen, and for Harrison Moore for putting this together. Uh, before we sign off, I'd like to share with you uh, one item that's uh, related to some of the discussions we've had today, a new policy analysis out, Preserving the Iran Nuclear Deal, Deal Perils and Prospects by Ariane Tabatabai. I'd like to encourage you to check that out. And I'd also like to share with you a video we put together for our 40th anniversary, sharing throughout the year, telling the story of the impact of the Cato Institute over the past 40 years. Enjoy it. We look forward to hosting you for our next e-briefing, currently scheduled for September 14th, featuring Ian Vasquez and Marianne Tupi. And thank you again for your support of our work promoting individual liberty, free markets, limited government, and peace. We'll talk to you again next time. When the Cato Institute launched, the climate for liberty was harsher than it is today. It was 1977. Communists controlled a third of the world. In the United States, the American people were still hurting from the lasting effects of Vietnam, wage and price controls, Watergate, and stagflation. Cato's purpose is to put proposals into the national policy debate that are consistent with individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Ideological battle lines appeared to leave little room for a third option. Even the word libertarian was itself poorly understood. Ideas like ending the Federal Reserve or the war on drugs were considered extreme. Back when I was first working, I was criticized by some people for being a follower. And I can remember that. And I say, how can they criticize you for liking a limited government, economic freedom, and individual liberty? And he said, oh, they have some far out ideas. And I think that's one of the exciting things about Cato. Their far out ideas become mainstream because uh, they're so intellectually uh, powerful. In the early 70s, uh, libertarianism was, uh, I don't know, it was a crackpot idea. And uh, people actually didn't admit that they were a libertarian. Shortly after its founding in San Francisco, the Cato Institute moved to Washington, D.C. Before Cato came to town, there was no libertarian presence in Washington.
when I came for an interview, we hadn't moved into the Waterston House yet, which was our first headquarters on 2nd Street. And it was a little law office. We had a back room without any shades on the window, and it had an uh, iron post bed there with a mattress that was, uh, the stuffing was coming out of it, and that was the interview. But unlike so many interest groups in our nation's capital, Cato exists not to advocate for government-directed protection or giveaways. Quite the opposite. We think the essence of America is a respect for the dignity of individual human life. And we think public policy should um, reflect that dignity and enhance it. And from our perspective, that means um, less government control over your life. Cato works to develop policy options that expand what we call civil society, the voluntary interaction of individuals, associations, religious groups, businesses, and, um, and try to limit political society, which uh, uh, of necessity is coercive. Cato's work has always focused on making sure that ideas to protect and preserve human freedom have a place in the discussion, whether the powers that be like it or not. Cato has been willing to criticize both parties' office holders when they've tried to take the country in a direction that favors expedience over freedom. Because of Ed Crane's talent and persistence, the Cato Institute is known and respected for its nonpartisan views. Unfortunately, most think tanks get semi-captured in the political process. It's a huge temptation because you think you're having impact, but then your ideas are no longer objective. So I think the objectivity and, and the adherence to our values, no matter what the political winds are blowing, is very unique. We come down sometimes in the liberal camp and sometimes in the conservative camp. That prevents us from being inside Washingtonians. We are actually outside Washingtonians, even though we are geographically located within the city. Democrats and Republicans are probably going to rarely uh, agree with Cato's policy positions, but they would be very hard put to find anything wrong in the data that Cato builds its conclusions on. It's the, it's the, the digging for facts and the digging for facts without prejudice, no alternative facts. Many people don't realize how broad Cato is in its defense of liberty and wants to box it in as if it's a right-of-center libertarian think tank when that is not all the case. Cato is on Team Liberty. It's not on Team Republican. It's not on Team Democrat. But Cato is also known for being open to supporting a broad range of people who intersect with the Institute for different parts of its core values and mission. Not beholden to politicians, political parties, or government funding, the Cato Institute makes the promotion of distinctly libertarian public policy solutions its fundamental purpose. I think the Cato Institute really deserves a lot of credit for its leadership in a, a couple of areas, one of which I, in which I was very involved, uh, and that is uh, social security privatization. Transforming social security from an eventually insolvent government program to a system of privately owned retirement accounts. That we took from nowhere, no one had thought of this idea, and got as far as the President of the United States second term agenda. Cato's work on the war on drugs I think has been very important because they've been able to elevate the costs of the war on drugs alongside of thinking about whatever benefits someone might think. In 1988, I wrote an article in the New York Times called Let's Quit the Drug War. Um, it was shortly followed, and I can't say because of, but it was shortly followed 
by The Economist endorsing legalization, the mayor of Baltimore endorsing legalization, congressional hearings being held on the topic, but the real case in, in terms of policy and analysis was not being made by very many people. Mr. Niskanen, is it protectionism of the rankest form? Yes, it's the worst trade bill that I have seen in many years. It will harm American consumers, it will harm American exporters, it will hurt our foreign affairs with some very important allies, it will probably destroy the prospects for a new trade round, it will hurt American bankers who have foreign loans. Uh, there isn't a good thing to be said about it. It is an organization that has always maintained that uh, free trade is as, in, as part of human dignity and human experience, uh, whereas organizations always thought of it purely as an economic means. Cato sees it as actually human flourishing. And there aren't a lot of groups that still focus on trade. It truly is wonderful to have, and, and necessary, to have an ally such as Cato, which will honestly live up to that statement attributed to Voltaire, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Here is an institute that is willing to stand up for, uh, for the right of, in, of every individual to say and do whatever he wants and do his own thing. Uh, there are, it, it sounds very banal, uh, it, uh, and it should be banal, but it's, unfortunately it's not that uh, simple. Cato is a great voice for liberty. It stands for free people and free speech, things which it just must have for a strong democracy. America's treasured constitution needs to be vigorously defended. An intrusive, overweening government and narrowly focused interest groups have done enormous damage to the struggle for a free society. Throughout its decades-long effort to promote the ideas that animate our founding document, Cato has printed more than six million pocket constitutions, including editions in Spanish and Arabic. The founding era of the United States left behind a fragile and decidedly imperfect civil society but the task of clarifying and promoting the ideas that help freedom take root is the purpose of the Cato Institute. There are many organizations and individuals that have played important roles in mainstreaming libertarianism, but uh, for that achievement, I always count Cato as the MVP. Cato really is the mothership. Cato is the preeminent forerunner uh, advancing liberty in the face of overwhelming government juggernaut. The fact that they go to lunch and come back and continue this, I think, is a real uh, testament to their, their patience and truly their courage to continue plugging along in the face of, of so much difficulty and adversity when it comes to fighting for limited government. So Cato is the keeper of the light. Cato sticks to its guns uh, better than anyone else. The power of changing where policy is headed in, uh, in this government uh, is a huge opportunity for Cato. So it's not when we made the, the greatest impact, it's we are going to make the greatest impact as we move forward. I'm very proud to be associated with the Cato Institute. I'm, I, uh, it's an organization that has a high level of integrity, with a high level of commitment to ideas with which, with which I agree. And I think it is making a difference against some tough odds. It is a moral imperative that we follow this example, reclaim our heritage as a free people, and reclaim our right to live in a just society. With Cato's track record over these past 40 years and the outlook for liberty continuing to improve, the Cato Institute will continue to be the foremost champion for human liberty.